You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. In many of my recent podcasts, I've been defending Christian universalism against various criticisms. In today's podcast, I want to focus on the positive aspects of believing God will save all. To do this, I am pleased to be joined by two friends I have made in my spiritual journey, each of whom have been a source of spiritual encouragement and inspiration to me. George Saris has his seminary degree from Gordon Cromwell Theological Seminary. He is a professional actor, narrator, communicator, and author of Heaven's Doors Wider Than You Ever Believed, as well as his forthcoming book, Searching for Truth in Vegas, Hollywood, and Bethlehem. Peter Hyde is the son of a Presbyterian pastor. He earned a degree in geology from the University of Colorado and a Master's of Divinity degree from Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. He has been the lead pastor at the Sanctuary Denver Church since 2008, and before that, pastored another church he founded in Golden, Colorado. He is the author of God and His Body, The Romance of Adam and His Bride, Eternity Now, Encountering the Jesus of the Revelation, Dance Lessons for Zombies, and All Things New, What Does the Bible Really Say About Hell? George Saris and Peter Hyatt, welcome again to the Grace Saves All podcast. Oh, thank you, David. Well, I was just thinking that I, I was reminiscing. I met you guys in 2016 at the Forgotten Gospel Conference in Denver, and we've been on quite a journey since then. <laughs> yeah. Indeed, that is true. Indeed, that is true. Well, what I wanted to do today is sort of get out of defensive mode and to get into more of a positive mode and talk about how this believing that God will save all has had a positive influence in our own lives personally, and then uh, how it has, how we have seen it affect the, uh, the lives of others personally. So let's just start in this part one by taking turns sharing about how this believing that God will eventually save all and restore the creation, how this has had positive effects in our own spiritual lives. Well, uh, <laughs> I, um, I came to this belief back in 1978. Uh, I had been bothered by the whole idea of never-ending hell. I had been on Campus Crusade for Christ staff for four years prior to that. And uh, then I went to Gordon-Conwell, and uh, I was in my third year at Gordon-Conwell. Uh, and I thought, you know, I had to do a research paper on this particular subject. And what mm-hmm. shocked me was discovering that in the early church, this was not only a prominent belief, it was probably the dominant belief of the early Christians that started the church. And so I got really excited about that. And what it did for me was, uh, I think, a couple of different things. Number one, it increased my love for God Mm -hmm. because suddenly I saw that God was good. That all this stuff, you know, it's amazing that you get people that, uh, my church just last Sunday, uh, saying the what is it? The overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. You know, it, nothing can overcome it. Right. But they don't believe it. Unfortunately, they don't believe it. And so you've always got this little dig at the end of every gospel message that you hear 
that says God really isn't good. But when I came to this particular understanding, I realized that God was good. Wow. That was just so exciting. He'll never let me down. And that, that, that song was really true, even though they didn't exist back in 1978. One of the, yeah, I noticed when I was starting to come to this viewpoint, we had started doing contemporary worship at our church, and I started to believe that God's grace was overwhelming. Well, then I started noticing that we were singing songs like Grace Wins Every Time and <laughs> songs about the never-ending, always victorious love of God. And I sort of realized that what was happening was that the people that were singing about this were singing about the victorious grace of God. It was coming out in the praise and worship music. And then it sort of made the job of the pastor to come along and say, well, well, not so fast. <laughs> so not so fast, not get carried away with, with all of this. So it's finding ways to kind of peek out this view of, of that. This really is all about grace. And when people get it, they get, they get excited about it. I think now, at least in the evangelical world, it's more the song leaders and the writers of the praise music that are that are feeling this and singing about it. And all the old hymns too, right? So mm-hmm. when I was uh, being tried by my denomination for just, just for hoping that God would make all things new and uh, leadership at our church were, were frustrated with me because I wouldn't um, acquiesce to their demands and renounce my hope for all mankind Mm. people kept coming to me really angry after worship saying why do you keep having us sing these songs you know to to justify your belief and i'd say we've sung these songs for some of them hundreds of years all creatures of our god and king holy 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 they all speak about god restoring all things and every creature worshiping and i and it's exactly like you said, George, that God is good. So you, you just don't come up with worship songs about God endlessly torturing people. They just don't work. That's very true. <laughs> Second well, thing that I thought of, too, when you were asking me about this, uh, David, mm-hmm. was it increased my respect for God because I saw him as all powerful. So he wasn't going to, there's no power in the universe that's going to defeat the God of heaven, that his stated desire is that he wants all to come to the knowledge of the truth, and he's going to accomplish it. It's really amazing. In fact, I was just I just finished narrating a book, uh, actually a good book. I won't give you the title of it, but um, the uh, the author was talking about how we as individuals really have. There's a lot of stuff that we have totally no control over. We have no control over our sex. We have no control over the time of birth, the, we, the family, the location that we're born in, our mental status, our physical stature, none of that kind of stuff. But he said, even more than that, we don't have control over our ancestors, the people that went before us. So God is in control of all these things that impact us. And uh, has at the end of his book, he was talking about how wonderful it is to be able to know that we someday when we die, we're going to go up to heaven and we will be with not only God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the saints, but we will be with our loved ones. And this is a wonderful thing to be able to go and be with our loved ones. And as I read that, I thought, well, what does this man say to those people who have children that are not 
walking with God, have never made any kind of a profession of faith, um, or parents, or siblings, or a spouse, or people that they just know. It's got to be sad. So I actually wrote to him and asked him if he wanted to read my book. So uh, we'll see if he gets back to me on that. But it, to me, it's given me the freedom to, to know and actually encourage a lot of people to say, no, 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 no. God is going to win. I can have a greater respect. You can have a greater respect for him because he is good and he's all powerful. That to well, this, me this, is amazing. Yeah, well, this sovereignty of God, that's Peter, this kind of is the... The, the contribution that the Reformed theological tradition that you came out of contributed to my rethinking all of this because I realized at a certain point, it was about a little over 10 years ago, I realized that I was not making God sovereign in my theology. And uh, anyway, that was just really, when I realized that I could believe that God was sovereign and that God was good and that that together meant that this wasn't about me having God, this was about God having me and all of us. That was just an amazing moment. Yeah, it's beautiful to discover that God is not testing us to find out what we will do. He, he already knows. He's He's testing us so that we will find out what he has done, which is salvation, which is Jesus, which is his judgment. And uh, yeah, that's why, you know, people stress when I say good things about John Calvin, but the reason that I, you know, was comfortable, I think, in Presbyterianism and the Reformed tradition is, I, I'm, I'm neurotic as it is. I just couldn't handle the stress of thinking that I could screw up a moment of witnessing and God would endlessly torture someone because of that. That's just absolute insanity. And so, at least in Calvinism, if someone was going to hell, it wasn't, you know, because of me. But then, of course, you think that went through and I don't, you know, like David Bentley Hart says, I, he says, I don't know that anybody actually believes this, mm. but, you, you know, you think, well, the, it's horrid to think that God would uh, predestine people to endless conscious torment. But the whole system works in a wonderful way once you just get rid of the idea that Jesus only died for some. And that's the one part of Calvinism that's really hard to reconcile biblically because Scripture talks over and over again about Jesus being the savior of the whole world and dying for all, uh, not just the, you know, our sins, but the sins of the whole world. But yeah, that's a, I, for me, that's a huge comfort that God is in charge. And so that really all that's left for me to do is, is worship him just to surrender to that reality. And even that is a gift of his grace. So um, yeah, the gospel becomes profoundly good and, God becomes profoundly good, and you take the fly out of the ointment that I call Satan's big butt, and I've had some wild encounters with the evil one, and he, uh, I'm convinced, we, we really do have an enemy, and what he is or isn't is a fascinating philosophical discussion, but I think his tremendously powerful weapon that he's wielded against the church now for at least, you know, well, a couple thousand years, but at least 1,500 years, is that after everything we say about God being good, he just has to whisper, but hell. Mm -hmm. And in people's minds, they think endless conscious torment. And it, 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 like, it undoes everything that we say about God that's good. So then Christians that um, go to church and sing those songs and 
go to conferences and talk about resting and the love of God, they have this underlying uncertainty or insanity that uh, that I think them makes them run from the judgment of God rather run than run to the judgment of God. And and I think that's where the evil ones lie is so powerful because, as I understand Scripture, it's when us have seen it's running from God's judgment. The only place to hide from God's judgment is outer darkness, and so the this news I think um, and this this is strange for some people, but I think this is this is salvation. Surrender God's judgment is salvation, and surrendering to His judgment keeps me from the outer darkness. And it's not that the outer darkness wins. Jesus always wins, and it's all part of God's plan. So, so I don't have to panic, but I don't have to live there uh, because God is good, and trusting that God is good really is salvation. Well, I, I remember when I first started uh, coming to this view, I live in a part of the world that is very uh, conservative. And when I came to this view, I got concerned that people would just dismiss me because, um, oh, you're just, you just turned liberal and, um, and you've stopped really taking the, you know, you've really stopped taking the Bible seriously. You just can't handle the, you know, the hard parts of the, what's in the Bible. And so, um, I was really excited when I went to the, um, well, to get to, when I went to the conference in 2016, the Forgotten Gospel Conference, and I met George, and I met you, and I'm with this whole room full of people, and it pretty much seems to me I'm in an evangelical worship service because all the people that were there basically were had evangelical backgrounds. Yeah. And uh, I was just shocked that there were so many people that were coming to this view from evangelical, from evangelical backgrounds. And so it was, I was excited to be able to say to people, I, I know this might initially sound a little uh, new agey or liberal, but it's actually in the earliest stratas of the church, belief in the early church. And I can tell you from my experience that, that most of the people that I am meeting that are coming to this view grew up in evangelical uh, backgrounds with very high views of, of scripture. Um, and so, that was just fascinating and interesting and wonderful for me. Yeah, I mean, one of I think one of the best things about this view for me is it allows me to believe all of Scripture. Um, mm. And I, what's I think really sad is I think in the modern evangelical church, we, people just don't because you just you just can't reconcile eternal conscious torment with so much of Scripture. But once you flip the paradigm. And I think you work from, uh, like Romans eleven thirty two for me is huge, that God consigned all the disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Well, and you realize, well, God's not just killing Canaanites. God's killing all of us. We all have to die with Jesus in order to rise with Jesus. And Hades or that outer darkness is is running from that judgment, which is, when this is the strange thing to me is, 
the painful, difficult part of the gospel we already know, and that is that we all have to die and turn to dust. We all, these old bodies of ours will all turn to dust, and that's part of the process of our creation in the image of God. And once I look at it through that paradigm, I mean, I, I, you know, if you look at the side of my Bible, my old Bible, it's all smudgy in the New Testament on the edge. You know, it's all dirty where I've been reading the New Testament. And then there were two big white spaces. Well, there was a big white space that's the Old Testament. And then there's a little white space at the end that's the Revelation. But now my Bible doesn't look like that anymore. I mean, I wrote a book on the Revelation. The more I studied it, I thought, well, this is the best. This is the best possible news. This, this, this is describing the world that I live in and what God is doing about it. And then when I go to the Old Testament, I realize God doesn't just destroy Canaanites. I mean, you follow the language through the whole Old Testament. God destroys Israel. He destroys the entire world so he can make it new, mm. which makes the the Bible so relevant because, I mean, we Americans are insulated, but there's an immense amount of suffering in this world. And the Bible doesn't sidestep it. Is the but it subsumes it under the topic of hope that this is all part of the process of being made in the image of God and learning to enjoy Him and become who we truly are, who we really are in eternity. So, anyway, I could go on forever, but uh, I mean, one thing for me is I just you know, you ask the question, How does this affect, affect your how has this affected your life? and I started to write down a few things and I couldn't stop because it really is, is everything mm. um, that, you, you know, if I, as a kid, if I believe that my dad had, you know, this secret life and this torture chamber in the basement where he endlessly tortured my brothers and sisters, I would be absolutely insane. And there's a lot of insanity in the church. Um, so, you know, and like Hart says, he doesn't know that anybody really believes this, but kind of the answer is the positive effects is this allows me to be a Christian. I mean, it's kind of kind of everything. So um, I wrote, you know, I you said, right, I wrote down some statements. Can I just read these real quick, David? Sure. So this is, this is what I wrote down. Then we can go back and talk about any of them that you want to. And I totally agree with everything George said, but... Um, I couldn't stop writing, so I did this in a lot of different categories. But this is the one I just scratched down real quick. I don't have to go to hell, and I long for heaven. I like God. I like people. I like to tell people about Jesus. I am enamored with the cross and the tree in the middle of the garden. I want to sacrifice. Uh, I want to die and be judged. I can abound in hope. I can forgive. I'm no longer in competition with my neighbor. I can be good for I can live in gratitude rather than fear. I'm not mentally ill. I can suffer. I love the Bible and can preach all of scripture. I can believe the Bible and I can reconcile it with the world. I can be curious about other people and other religions. I can defeat the evil one. I can evangelize the dead. I'm not afraid like I used to be afraid. Um, so I, I don't I don't know you know where to even start. It really is it really is everything. 
I think you're absolutely correct. That's brilliant. Uh, those are wonderful things. Uh, I just broke down a couple of things there. You know, one was that God is, or it's enabled me to love God more, to respect God more. The, the third thing I wrote down was that it gives me uh, confidence in who God is, that I know that he's never going to abandon me. Yeah. And, um, you know, your comment, uh, Peter, about how you couldn't possibly believe that your dad had a torture chamber in the basement where he was torturing people. Um, that's so true. Uh, it's just so profound, really, that that how could I possibly believe that someday my dad would abandon me? Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't ask to be created. He created me. And then to abandon me? That just seems so horrid. Yeah. Uh, and I, I've come co- to convince your uh, comment, David, about the uh, evangelicals. Uh, I think what happened, unfortunately, with the evangelicals is that they changed the basic message of Christianity. They changed it from, or at least the Great Commission, they changed it from go and make disciples to go and make converts. And so what that does is it takes your whole focus on uh loving people away and it's just oh i got to get them into the kingdom so therefore i got to go from one person to another to another just try to get them to pray this prayer then they'll be all set and uh whew, then i'll be i'll be uh have a clear conscience but yeah, that's yeah. ridiculous cuz what god wants us to do is to make disciples who grow in their love for god grow in their love for other people and as a result of that then the gospel begins to spread yeah, George, listen to this, the, your, the Great Commission, because we, I preach a sermon on this called The Great Omission, because we give the Great Commission and we, and we omit the verse that comes before it. But listen to the verse that comes before it. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I mean, in other words, that, you know, authority, I think there is a kousia. Um, So it's like all power, all authority, it's all mine. And then to tra- the next verse translates uh, literally would be something like going therefore disciple all nations in other words confident that i've already won mm. walk out into the world and share this good news with everybody and the good news really is good news because it's a proclamation of a fact rather than a threat um requiring rather than a test to see who gets in and who doesn't get in, it, it's the announcement of good news, which is what euangelion means. Hmm. I, I spent um, uh, over, I spent about a year and a half preaching through the Sermon on the Mount one time. And so I get to the very, and what I realized that something's interesting is you would think that Jesus is in Jerusalem, he's crucified, he's risen, and that that would be a good place to start everything. But no, the disciples are told to go back to a, a mountain in Galilee. Well, that's where, I mean, go back to Sermon on the Mount, that's on a, a mount in, in Galilee. And it says, I go, you know, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to, to obey all these things that I have commanded you. So this gets back to being Jesus wanting disciples. This is all authorities been given to me, go, you know, be going therefore and making disciples, teaching them to obey all the things that I have, you know, all the things that I have taught you. And like what you're saying, George, is that got, that part of it, got, you might say, subsumed by the 
by the feeling that, wait a second, we've got to save people from, we got to get them to say the name of Jesus so they don't go to hell forever. And then once that happened, that whole, that just started driving everything. Well, and I think that, and in the, in the modern era, I think that the other huge thing with American churches is it really isn't, this is what I discovered. It's really not even so much about saving people. It's about getting people to join your church. So what evangelical, I think, sadly, in my denomination came to mean church growth, mm-hmm. which which I think just <laughs> dis- de- destroys the, the message because then Jesus becomes a means for us growing institutions and we succumb to the psychology and sociology of the principalities and powers. So rather than doing battle against the principalities and powers, we become, the church becomes one of the principalities and powers of this world, which is all just about getting bigger rather than being healed or being new. I, I, um, I've often said that one of the big problems is when you have the idea that everybody's going to go to hell, I got to make converts, then you have an agenda every time you talk to somebody. That agenda is I got to get them to pray this prayer. In fact, if my one friend said, yeah, it's confessional regeneration. I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, yeah. term that he used. But what our agenda should be is to love them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, I was just talking with a friend recently about, because because of my other book, the book that I'm going to be uh, publishing shortly, um, he's and, and saying, the goal of a Christian is not to win arguments not to get a person to just pray this prayer right away. The goal is to love them, to establish relationships. And once you have relationships with people, then opportunities come up all the time to share about what is really important for them. Mm-hmm. I, one of the things that has happened in my uh, career uh, over the years, I would get into discussions with people about marriage. And I could share biblical principles about marriage or about raising children or about um uh, resisting temptations. I mean, all these kinds of things came up. And if my only goal was to get them to pray this prayer right away, it wouldn't deal with the issues that they had. But once you got, once I could deal with the issues that they had, then they wanted to know more. And then I could share more about who Jesus Christ was and how it would uh, impact their lives. Well, but I, it's having the agenda of loving people, not making converts. Well, no, I guess I, I got to the point, too, where I struggled with what exactly is the prayer they're supposed to pray, because ultimately it's, you know, like Paul says this in Second Timothy, he's, which is what, right before he's probably dying. And he said he talks about the crown of life being laid up for all those who loved his appearing. And I think what he's saying is, well, the judgment is literally Jesus and the name Jesus literally means God is salvation. And so. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And on that day, um, will you trust him? Will you hope him? So biblically, trust is faith. And so my job then is to testify, which is what you said at the very start of this conversation, George, and that is to testifying to the fact that God is good, that that's what the good is. And Last week in this last couple sermons, I talked about this crazy thing that I, I wouldn't. One of the one of the differences this has made for me is I can scripture makes sense, and also the weird experiences that are in my reality make sense. And 
in this old church building that we rented and downtown Denver, um, where before we had the conference built in 1890, we had to deal with some really weird spiritual things. Mm -hmm. We even have a, we have a black thing flying around on video. All this stuff stresses people out because they, because they don't trust God. But then my wife, who's a church cleaning lady, started coming and getting me because there were ghosts. I don't know how else to describe them, but if you look in scripture, the word you'll find the word ghost and or familiar spirits and i think it's describing people that are stuck in um this current temporal reality that are running from the judgment that is god it's like it, it was fascinating people that are in hades which you know sometimes gets translated hell the reason i'm saying all this is that on three different occasions i ended up trying to deal with these things and i had had kind of wild experiences with demons and Satan. And I know a lot of people, that's not part of their worldview, but I, believe me, if you saw these things, you, you you wouldn't struggle with realizing something really weird is going on here. I mean, I, I have no other way to explain it. But with these, and my wife could see them with these things, it was really like people that were lost. They were genuinely lost. And couldn't hear the gospel and the last time well no the on well two or three times well two times <laughs> we prayed and susan will have these visions and i've learned to trust them so i'm sharing this not so you believe in signs and wonders or whatever but because this makes sense of all of scripture for me and uh these the last the last time it happened we went into this dark room under that old sanctuary and there were these figures cowering in the darkness and uh i susan and i were in there with this crawl space it was wild and uh i ended up praying that jesus would just reveal himself and mm -hmm. susan said he she she saw him and then she, and behind him there was this door that opened up and she said the other side looked like an entire new creation and she said but peter these figures just cower in the darkness and they won't look up at him and so i um not knowing quite what to do i think what i did is i began to preach the gospel and by that i mean i didn't present like this is a plan and if you agree to it you're in and if you don't you you're not in i just began to tell him who jesus was and i said look he he likes you. He loves you. He died for you. Um, he came to save you. He makes all things new. You can trust him. He doesn't condemn you. And Susan started saying, Peter, some of them are starting to look up. And when they look up, they stand up. And I get emotional talking about this. She said they, they go to him. And as they go to him, they're transformed. And then they walk through the door. And by the end of that time, and we'd had a time like this before, she said, but there are some still cowering here in the darkness. And the last thing that Susan heard the Lord say is, um, I'm leaving this door here for all those that will still come. That was right under the spot I used to stand and, and preach. And I felt so stupid and powerless because I'd just been defrocked for this hope. But I realized, no, when I... When I preach the gospel, I'm, it's like I'm dropping these seeds of hope into the earth. And what is, so the question is, what is it that makes that person cowering in shame? 
look up. And I go, well, the biblical word for that is faith and hope. And what are they hoping in? They're hoping in love, and God is love. And so my job, if I'm an evangelical, is to just announce this incredibly good news that, well, God is Jesus. God is salvation. God is his love, because one day we're all going to stand before him. And if you run from him, the only place to hide is nowhere and nothing, the outer darkness. But you run to him, and he, 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 he creates you, recreates you, redeems you, fills you with himself. And so th- uh, this is so huge, I think, because it's reclaiming the gospel, the good news of, of who God is. And, you, you know, you, when you read the gospels, Jesus is one thing that used to drive me nuts. Uh, you were talking about this, George, is. You know, if it, if it was really this plan to get people to to agree to this thing in order to get them in the door, I go, Jesus, we keep screwing up your parables. You just tell these weird parables <laughs> and then you walk away. You know, why aren't you giving them the, the four spiritual laws? Not that I'm against that or anything. And I had to come to realize that my job as a preacher is to just tell folks about who God is. And, you know, even on Pentecost, when Peter preaches, he tells a story, and then the people say, what must I do to be saved? And he says, repent, which means change your mind. In other words, you got to think about God differently. And then he says, you know, and, and get baptized, which means you're dying to your old way of living. But Peter doesn't even tell him what to do. What he tells them is who God is, and that's this person, Jesus, and that information, that fact of who God is, of what his judgment is, is is what saves people, because that's Jesus. Well, when you're talking about these things, one of the things that it reminds me of is, um, is what happens if you've ever, if you've ever turned around, maybe you're in nature or something, and you see something extraordinarily beautiful, how it literally, you know, it takes your, you know, it takes your breath away, or there's, certain certain beautiful moments or you when you see beauty you're just drawn you're you're just drawn to it nobody has to drive you towards beauty um well anyway what happened to me was i I thought that i had a pretty good view of the beauty of god i thought that this is you know 10 12 years ago i thought well my god is good he's only if somebody doesn't get saved it's only going to be because they are determined to resist god to the very bitter end in other words god is not going to lose anybody over a misunderstanding it's just going to be that they just get darker and darker and darker and like maybe those shades you were talking about peter maybe they just finally disappear or evaporate or you know but it's it, but it won't, god won't be at fault because god will have done everything possible and i was you know pretty satisfied with that way of thinking well, then it was actually some folks in my church that came to me and asked me to rethink all of this. And so I go through this big period of study and reflection. And I, like we're talking about earlier, I started thinking about the sovereignty of God and the will of God and how could the sovereign will of God fail to come to pass. And if God's sovereign will is to finally redeem all people and restore the creation, then who's going to stop God from doing this? And so it was like I made this sort of teeny change in my theology. I just went from believing that God would save everybody that was savable, except that the, you know, the very, very, very worst, meanest, evil, resistant people ever, that those were the only people that weren't maybe going to make it. 
Well, then when I made just that little change that no, the sovereign will of God will be accomplished and the sovereign will of God is that God redeems and restores all of his children and all of creation. When I made that little change, it was <laughs> it was kind of like a spiritual explosion. It was like all of a sudden I saw I don't the glory of God. Mm-hmm. And you know, I just kind of wanted to fall down and worship like, oh, that's that's right. who you are. Right, and right. I, I've kind of been thinking about it ways to talk about this. It's like if you if you when you looking through a telescope and you zero in and then you finally get the view and it becomes absolutely clear to you. Or I was thinking about those. I don't know if you've seen those. uh, There are those three dimensional pictures that you look at. And at first it seems all fuzzy, but then after a while it just pops out at you and you see what you hadn't been there the whole time. And then when I saw it, it was like this hallelujah moment and uh, it hasn't gone away. You know, it, it's not, it's not ever, it's not ever faded. I, I'm excited about it and energized by it every single day now. And yeah, I yeah. love to have these conversations with other people and I love to get to share about it. And I hear yeah, emails from people and just to be in this conversation, to get to see this and to share it with other people. So that's been, a, that's been amazing how it's uh, supercharged my spiritual life. And on the other hand, I don't, I'm not mad at people anymore. I'm not upset. I'm not mad at people no. who have a different point of view or a different political position that I have because I see them all as my future fully reconciled brothers and sisters in Christ. And if they've got something wrong, that'll be corrected with them. If I've got something wrong, that'll be corrected with me. We're all destined to be in one beautiful, joyous harmony. So if that's how I imagine them, well, yeah, I could still be, I could still disagree with them, but I don't hate them or dislike them. I think of them as my eternal uh, brother and sister. And then yeah, I got to thinking, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, well, let me, let me last... just, yeah, say okay. that. And then I'll, <laughs> okay. And then <laughs> okay. one last thing, I was, George, I was reading through your book, your new book, and, and you were talking in that book a little bit about how adversity actually mm-hmm. can have positive effects on people that it, and I was thinking that, it, that this is really when when I adopted the view that God was going to ultimately save all, I had it as a private opinion, and then I started sharing it in a very guarded way with some people around me that I knew that I could trust. But then once I did the book and I did the podcast and it it became more open, I did start getting some, you know, some criticism and and feedback. But um, I think that that also, in a way, has helped my faith. It's made me more resolute. Um, you might say my Bible has gotten more read in the last <laughs> several years because now I'm reading the whole Bible. I'm trying to make sense out of this. I'm I'm constantly thinking about these things, and it has it it has I guess in a way this has forced me to keep spiritually on my toes. Hmm. Um, and so. For me, it's just been, it's, yes, there has been some, you know, some struggles with it, but I'd just say on the, all the way around, it's been a positive experience that's, that's helped me to meet all kinds of people, friends that I didn't know I had in the Christian world in different camps and places. And it's connected me more with the early church than I ever felt I, you know, than I was connected before. So in a way, it's made this whole experience of being a Christian come alive in a way that I couldn't have anticipated. 
I agree. In fact, for me, one of the things too is that it's enabled me to love everybody. I don't have to love them just because they agree with me. In fact, most of the people, you know, I, I work in, uh, <laughs> I'm not <clears throat> like you in an area where there's a lot of evangelicals and big churches, etc. I'm in the Connecticut, New York City area working in the industry, at least I was more more before, but um, working in a, an industry where you have people from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of weird ideas that many of them have, and I could love them all. You know, I could just talk to them, share with them, wait for the appropriate time, because too often what's happening is we're trying to share a, a message with people, and they're not in a position to listen to it or to receive it. And if I can take and just love them, that's really the key. So what it's done for me is enabled me to love people. And also, one of the things that really was, I think, obviously a big uh, problem for um, people, especially in the evangelical world, we're not talking about people that are really terribly, horribly, wicked, bad, bad, bad people. We're talking about people. And so you think, okay, uh, if you ask the typical uh, evangelical, um, of which I am, what percentage of the total population of the earth will eventually be in heaven? Well, often you'll get, oh, probably 10%. Sometimes they'll go up to 25%. But that means that anywhere from 75 to 90% of the people that God created will be suffering consciously forever. That is, what kind of a God is that? That's a God who's very much a defeated deity. I mean, he just has no power at all. You know, he creates these people so they can suffer consciously forever. That, that just is horrendous. Um, and, and that is really, I think, the biggest uh, argument that people have against Christianity is, well, why would God allow so many people to suffer forever in hell? I've come up with that uh, often, you know, that yeah, yeah. response. Yeah, I'm feeling a little insecure about sharing that crazy story, but because let, let me share this and comment on some things you just said. I th I think everybody goes through the door because Scripture says that uh, either they they go through the door in one way or another, and uh, and one of those weird things, one guy turned to dust, but I think the dust went through the door, and we all turn to <laughs> dust and go through the door. Um, but I I think what's encouraging to me about the story is those people cowering in the darkness, they're me. And, and I mean that on a couple different levels. We've all cowered in the darkness, afraid to look up at God and, and trust him. And so when the Bible talks about the outer darkness and Hades, I go, it's something that we're all familiar with because we're already trapped there. Um, and Jesus is the door. It's the moment that I look up and trust the Father and surrender to his judgment that I would be made in his image that I go through the door. Um, but the but this is what I love about it is it has a purpose. In other words, something grows in the darkness, and the thing that grows is is hope because we we lose confidence in our through adversity through suffering. I'm learning that I can't save myself, and you know, big thing I talk about a lot is th that I think that the fundamental division in the heart of every person is between Jesus and Mises, and Jesus means God is salvation. And my old man believes that Peter Hyatt is salvation. And that old belief has to die. That's the old man that has to die that gets replaced uh, with the new man. 
and so the people in the darkness, they are me on, on that level and that I'm just like them. I'm not better than them or worse than them. But they're also me in the sense that they actually are me, that um, we are, there's one Adam. So as an Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive as a second Adam. And so humanity is this whole where what happens to George happens to me. And so I, w- once I come to that realization, well, then say telling somebody about Jesus is, well, I, it's the difference between selfishness and not selfishness goes away because they're a part of me. And so I'm, everyone is of benefit to me and no one is my competitor. And if I begin to share out of fear, you know, like you were talking about that, um, George, the weird thing is if I stress about their salvation, I testify that God is not salvation. It took me a while to realize that, but I used to, you know, I used to feel such pressure to evangelize people on airplanes that I hated flying because I would just Mm. get so stressed. And then I also began to realize and I'm testifying that God is not salvation because when they don't, when they don't receive the word that I'm giving, I start to panic, and then I start to argue them into the kingdom. Whereas Jesus would just say stuff and walk away. But when I make that argument, what am I really doing? I'm saying to that person, "Look, we've got to get this right in order to save ourselves from God, in order to save you from God." So I'm really testifying to Mises and my power to save you from Jesus, who who is God, rather than testifying that God is salvation. And I just want to give you some, some good news. And once I realize that I'm not the Savior, well, then it becomes kind of a delight to testify to the Savior because, you know, you sit by someone who's and, and you have a real conversation with them and it'll come out. It'll come out. Um, yeah, I kind of hate myself. Um, I'm scared. I, I kind of think maybe God hates me. And, and you've got this incredible news, like, no, God is absolutely, he adores you. And the sooner you, the sooner you come to know that the better, but I don't have to panic because it's all grace and all God's gift anyway, that in the end, even, you know, and this is what I believe Paul's saying throughout his letters, in the end, even that trust is a gift of God. So so that means even for the figures cowering in the darkness, God is, God is working the entire time, just as he's working when I encounter adversity and suffering in my life and sit in the darkness, afraid to look up because of my shame. And the Holy Spirit whispers into my soul that, he loves me or another believer tells tells me that he loves me and in that moment i gain i have knowledge of evil which is to be separated from god to run from god and i gain the knowledge of good and that is that god is salvation and that knowledge then fills me with life and i think that's what god is all about peter when you were when you were talking about that um you you were saying that you felt maybe um, maybe a bit of chagrin about sharing that, that sort of, um, some people might say kind of out there spiritual story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but what was interesting to me is when, you know, I've, I think maybe I'm more on the, um, very 
rationalistic side of things. And it's harder for me to get in touch with sort of the emotion, sometimes emotional parts of things. And, um, I don't know. I, but when, when I was, and I always wondered, you know, like what it was, what must it be like to be one of these Christians that really encounters somehow the spiritual realm in these really direct kinds of ways that I don't seem to. And, uh, but most of those people, I guess, whenever ever I heard them, none of their stories ever had happy endings. There were always, you know, these, uh, there were lots of just sad stories in, about all this spiritual warfare. But the thing about your stories is in your stories, there actually is good news at the end of these spiritual warfare stories. There's goodness and there's light and there's victory and there's hope, you know, even in the midst of all of that. Yeah, let me say this real quick. I'm like you. I'm the rationalistic one. And my wife, you know, I, I started dating Susan because she had these tight white polyester pants in high school. That's how God spoke to me. And so and I was worried that she wasn't having her quiet times, you know. And then she's, she, in a ways into our marriage, she'd walk in and say, hey, I just heard God say this. And, and I go, Do you, don't you realize that's a Bible verse? She, and this one time, it was so funny. She just looked at me and said, you know me, I don't read the Bible. I said, well, you just quoted Zechariah. And I said, how did you know that? She said, well, God just told me. But I was always the science critical, rationalistic person. And as a young pastor, um, I just, I remember I just said, I had seen once this thing down at Hollywood Press where a friend of mine prayed for a guy with this demonic spirit and it freaked me out because I grew up in the church. So I've grown up around emotionalism. And so I don't like the emotionalism and I don't like people trying to make me feel something emotional. So I just pray, God, I, I want you to be more real to me. And I would pray for, I would, and I don't even like to say this because I don't, because then people maybe want to call me. I don't know. But I said, I would even pray for people with demons if you want. And right after that, I met this gal that um, it's a long, long story, but she had been ritually wed to Satan. And mm -hmm. I, at first I was like, nah, there's nothing going on here until one night when it was just the craziest stuff started happening. So, so the weird thing for me is it's really not the emotional thing. Cause I just saw some outright stuff that my science brain could explain no other way than, okay, we're dealing with spiritual realities here that are a bit terrifying and then i learned to begin to trust my wife and her perception so one thing i think that's beautiful about this message is that everybody's gifted and but everybody's different so um i you know i had to come to terms with the fact that god speaks to me through my brain he uses my brain and in my wife he gives her impressions he gives her words and then praying for this friend lo and behold she was right. And things that I would take forever to get to with my brain, God would just would just uh, tell her. Um, but then this was a big part of my coming to this understanding was that I encountered things just so horrifying and so evil. I mean, I just was like, God, I can't I can't exist anymore. Unless I see that you win, you've got to win. And the amazing thing to me is that 
and you know, and this, these are stories that span over years is when we hang in there and we're willing to go. It's like Julian of Norwich said, Jesus said this to her about the cross. He said something to her like this, like, if I'm willing to turn the greatest of evil into the greatest of good, speaking of the cross, you know, cause you go, what could be more evil than what we did to Jesus? And yet that turns into the revelation of the greatest good. He said to Julian, would I not do that with all lesser evils? And that was the thing that I discovered is if we were willing to hang in there and go there to these places where you just feel utterly undone, like I have, I am so lost right now. Like God, unless you save, this is over. And then lo and behold, Jesus would show up and he would. And um, one of the, I had told you this, David, I think, but in one, years ago, one of those crazy sessions, I mean, and this is not emotional. This is like, if you had this on film, it would be like a terrifying R-rated movie. Um, and she's cowering in my office. The evil, Satan, I believe himself was manifesting in her body. We had just had communion. And this was wild for a Presbyterian it would burn her like fire. It was just the craziest thing. And I began to realize, oh, the fire is really good. But I remember I was so angry and I discovered why he had, how he had gained access to her body. And, um, oh, sorry, I just, I was so um, angry at evil. I don't even know how to just like, and I think that's the hard thing about evil. Evil is just so evil. And you begin to realize, oh, because this is not God. This is the manifestation of, of not God. And I, I remember I just, I kind of yelled. I you didn't need to yell, but I, I just said, Jesus wins, doesn't he? And I had bound the evil one. And mm-hmm. in this agonizing voice as he's leaving, I hear him say, Jesus always wins. And, and I, and I remember just sitting back going, Jesus do you always win? And and lo and behold, I began looking at scripture, theology, um, wrestling uh, with these all these experiences and realized he really does always win. And it's not just in the end, but the end is now in the sense that I really think he's making all space and time new, which gets into just fascin- fascinating cosmology. So on the other side of that door, w- w- in the in the darkness i believe was eternity and eternity i don't think is endless time eternal eternity is a different experience of of time is that place where everything's finished and always is good and our brains can't really encapsulate it but the people that are stuck in darkness are people that are afraid to walk through that door and give up control of the self, which I believe is the old man, which ultimately has to be given up because it's an illusion. It's a lie from the evil one. Um, but the good, but the good news is that Jesus, Jesus always wins. And even the time in the darkness, I believe gets, uh, redeemed. So I say all that to say, um, I'm not the, now I'm getting emotional, but those experiences for, for me were, um, sh- shockingly real. What makes them hard for a scientific mind is that they that you're dealing with something that doesn't submit to a controlled environment. So you know when you run a scientific test, you're dealing with carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen inanimate objects, 
and you're looking for repeatable events. But when you're dealing with people like your wife or, or a spirit, you can't, you can't run the same kind of experience. You encounter them and, and you testify. But um, for, that's, the, that's the big one. That's a big one for me. What difference does this make to Peter? Well, I actually think I'm beginning to believe that Jesus always wins, which means I, I want to I just want to be with him wherever he is, which then helps me. And, th- and this is important, too. It helps me in my own struggle with sin. So, you know, I think kind of the old way we formulate the gospel is you go get your crap together and then you present it to Jesus and see if you pass the test. But instead, I began to realize, no, Jesus is with me all the time. And that this was something God showed us in these wild encounters is that Jesus was always there. The thing was that people didn't have the eyes of their hearts open to his presence. And once I began to realize, oh, he's with me everywhere and I don't need to hide from him. He's not ashamed of me. He's not surprised by me. He never says, oh, my gosh, I never thought Peter would do such a thing. He, he's known about it from before time began. And he loves me. Once I become aware of his presence, well, then I find, yeah, maybe I don't want to watch the rest of this movie. Or, yeah, maybe I, I, think, I, I think I've had enough beer or whatever. But we, we begin to do everything together. And I think I've also come to realize, and he's always with me. So he'll never leave me nor forsake me because he's the very word that's spoken into the darkness that creates me. He's the very the breath that's breathed into the dust that becomes Peter Hyatt. And, you know, that's this other huge, no no matter whether you go the Arminian route or the Calvinist route or whatever, you have to ask the question, why on earth would God create beings that he knows he would have to endlessly torture and that would break his heart? It's just, well, if if someone came, you know, if, if someone came along on my honeymoon and said, hey, if you just wait five seconds, and sorry to be crass, but... You know, you have sex five seconds later, um, your son won't be a mass murderer that you'll have to kill and torture. He will be the the Pope or whatever. We go, well, okay, well, then you just, you would do that. And um, why on earth God would, no matter how you look at free will, create someone knowing that he would endlessly torture them, either on purpose or, or or just knowing, it's, it's just... I, I guess I run out of words. It just feels like this bizarre insanity. And then these wild encounters, I should, no, I'll shut up. These wild encounters with the evil one made me realize, oh, I see where this is coming from. This is, this is the heart of the evil one's lie. When I was tried, they told me I had to basically confess two things publicly. One is that there's a group of people that could not be saved. And secondly, that God was unable to save them, that he, that God wasn't love, that God wasn't all love, and God wasn't all power is basically what they were saying. And in these wild encounters with the evil one, I realized, well, this is the heart of the evil one's lie, that God doesn't love you, and that God's not powerful enough to save you. And that's what keeps those people looking down in shame in the outer darkness. They need to hear, no, he's he does absolutely love you and he's powerful so look at him look up at him and trust him and and then it's easy to come along and say so did god need you to tell them and i go no he didn't need me to tell them he let me tell them so i think of the gospel like 
when I would, you know, I used to buy flowers for Susan when the kids were little. And like the thing they love to do is they, you know, they just say, well, daddy, could I hand the flowers to mom? Mm -hmm. Um, Mom knew that I paid for the flowers. (laughs) A five-year-old didn't pay for the flowers, but I invited them to share in my joy. And, you know, when you read the parable, like of the talents uh, in scripture, that's what the, the Lord keeps saying is enter into my joy or share in my joy. So people's salvation is not dependent on me, but I get to be the one that hands them the flowers, which is such an incredible gift. And how you sit next to someone on a plane who you know is thinking that God absolutely hates them, and you don't just say, well, I have a, I'm pretty convinced he adores you. Um, well, you get to hand him the flowers in the moment. That's that's such a privilege. So there, I rambled on about a bunch of things, but um, I think that what what the evil one is or isn't is a long topic. But I think you, you if you if you walk through the darkness, um, if, you're, if you're willing to go with Jesus to those dark places, you get these incredibly glorious pictures of who He is, and 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 then this maybe this gives hope. We all have those dark places. So the thing I began to realize is in dealing with these super weird spiritual experiences, well, they're just like the experiences we have every day. It's just that the veil has been pulled back a little bit and you begin to see some of the players in this drama, um, which I think is what the the revelation is all about too. And well, Jesus is just always good. He's always good, always wonderful. I think one of the things that uh, I said in my book, and I think it kind of relates to what you're saying there, is that the greatest story ever told is not a tragedy. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, exactly. I just love the way that, in fact, it was interesting. The very first date I ever went on, I was in high school or just had graduated from high school. The, the actual first real date was taking this young woman to the film, The Greatest Story Ever Told. And I didn't even know what it was all about. <laughs> I didn't, you know, that was your first date? <laughs> that was my first date. I think, the Greatest Story, what's it, what's it about? I have no idea, but it sounded like a cool title for a film. So we went there. But The Greatest Story Ever Told is not a tragedy because yeah. God does win. Yeah. And that is, you know, I don't like tragedies. <laughs> when I see, you know, I, I'll read some of uh, Shakespeare's players or whatever the, the tragedies. And I, I don't like those. <laughs> you know, I want to have a good ending. I want to have a positive ending to a story, and that's what reality is. That's what yeah. true life is. It's a real positive ending, and it's not fudging it ar- around. It really does yeah. have a happy ending. You know, Tolkien said you cannot keep the gospel out of stories. And I've Mm. thought about that for years and years. And even tragedies, tragedies work because everybody walks out of the theater longing for gospel. They are longing for good news, right? Because the story arc is always the story of going through adversity, trauma, people, and then some sort of salvation, some sort of grace enters into the story. And then somehow things reconcile, they come to good. They come all together as good. So the question I think scripture is asking over and over again is, well, could it be that God is good enough that he could really bring everything together? And Mm -hmm. I I think this is where your cause, uh, uh, thinking through cosmology really helps in that 
I, in order to know what evil is, evil doesn't have to continue. In other words, I, I can gain the knowledge of evil here, and that knowledge can be forever overwhelmed by the good without the existence of evil in eternity. So, you know, in Scripture, the picture is that God fills all things. And I think evil really is like an absence of God. So in this world, and this is where the story of the garden is so fascinating, I think, is I really do gain knowledge of evil. And the knowledge of evil then reveals the glory of the good. And when I surrender to the good, that really is what life is. And the good is eternal. Evil is temporal. So the evil is passing away. But I don't need evil to exist eternally in order to love the good. I just need knowledge of evil to exist eternally. And I think that's what humanity, that's why angels long to look into our salvation. I think we, we will know something that in a way they, they don't know it. One of the things that has been interesting for me is I used to, I think, think of heaven as a place, I don't know, maybe kind of like a big amusement park <laughs> everybody is walking around, everybody's happy, everybody's in a good mood, and there's music, and everything is fun. Um, but, you know, and then, um, you know, maybe every now and then you get to go make a trip and get to see God or something, you know, something along those types of lines. But then um, I, in studying all this, I ran across an early church father named Irenaeus, and he had this idea of recapitulation that all of creation would be in recapitulated in Christ. And he read this, he got this from Ephesians 1.10, and there's this passage, uh, it's got a really long Greek word, yep, which means bringing together under, uh, kephala is head, so bringing together under the head, and then it ends up ta ponta, all um, yeah. that all will be that it gets translated in english all things but it's just all that all will be under the head and then i found this quote from Irenaeus: for just as because of the disobedience of one human being molded from virgin earth all were made sinners and had to renounce life so also was it necessary that thanks to the obedience of one being born one human being born from a virgin all be justified and receive grace God recapitulated in himself the original whole of humanity so to kill sin, deprive death of its power, and vivify humanity. Mm. Yeah. And that was written, you know, almost 2,000 years ago. Right. <laughs> was, yeah. And so, been, yeah. And Irenaeus was like a disciple of, I think, Papias or someone like that. He was a disciple of John. So you're going back to like the very... You know, so you're talking... So it's like talking about what your great-grandfather or grandfather had said. Uh, so I, I think for me, a huge, huge, huge benefit to this is just rethinking through what the atonement means. And I think the closest historical, but the biblical view is that of Irenaeus when he talks about recapitulation, but the word is really to bring together under one head. And then when I realize that's part of creation. So the big story when I look around the world, is that, well, we're all brothers and sisters. We're all being created in the image of God. Some are further along than others, but we're all one family. 
and your joy is my joy ultimately. We're part of that, that and we're part of the same, ultimately going to be yeah. part of the same body. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think, and we, and, it, and we kind of were kind of part of the same body in this crazy way in that we're all Adam. So, you know, if you know Hebrew and study the Old Testament, you realize that the word for man or mankind is Adam, and there are all these places, especially in the book of Ecclesiastes, preaching through that kind of blew my mind, where um, it really talks about all of us as being one. We're like one thing that's blown apart and now comes back together under the headship of, of Christ. Okay, we have done a good amount of talking then now about how this has kind of affected us personally. We, we, we have kind of gotten into also how we've seen it affect others personally, but let's just take some time now to just talk about how we've seen uh, this belief once other people take it on um, be helpful for them in some way. I, um, I actually, just last night, uh, found out from uh, my daughter that one very close friend of ours, uh, their their daughter is not walking with God at all and uh, having some difficulties. And interestingly, she had commented many, many years ago uh, before I talked with her about God's never-ending love that uh, the greatest thing that brought great, great sadness to her heart was thinking that what would happen if one of my children didn't follow God and would be suffering in hell forever. And uh, she was just so grateful for knowing that, wow, maybe this would, God's going to win. This is exciting. And so she's able to handle the difficulties within her, her family. And the girl is still a young girl, so she's got a lot more to, to, uh, God's going to win. And I think in this world as well. But um, just the idea of being able to share with someone that you don't have to be afraid of children being born. You know, why do we give birthdays? Why do we celebrate? My daughter, my one daughter just had a baby uh, on December 5th, her third child. And uh, we rejoiced at that. Well, if you look at the percentages of what the typical church idea is that 75 to 90 percent of the people that are born will never will will suffer consciously forever in hell that's just horrible horrible news but if you have that good news it's exciting and so yeah, it's such it's it. such horrible news i know some people who uh decided that they could not have children well, they couldn't I take the risk understand. yeah I, I i can certainly understand that but it's been for me a number of people that i've shared this with have been so excited because it gave them freedom to not have to preach at their kids all the time, to try to get them to, to change. They could love their children. They could love these other people that were important to them and at the right time share information with them, but not push and push and push and actually push them away. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's huge. Boy, the, I, David, I think that was, once again, that's such a huge uh, question. With what we were just saying, I was thinking this morning of something I saw on a podcast, uh, the YouTube thing with Ber- Bernardo Castrup, who does all this fascinating stuff about artificial intelligence and um, consciousness and consciousness and machines. And he's not a he's not a Christian, but I don't think he'd necessarily say he's not not a 
Christian. Um, but he said something fascinating to me. He said, you know, he said, I think modernism took such so many people became atheists. And when modernism took over, because he said the psychological implications of living in a world where most people will be endlessly tortured by their creator were so great that people embraced atheism with glee because it's so much better to just be exterminated than endlessly tortured. So I think also, you know, I've heard so many people say, well, now I can believe the gospel. Mm. I mean, I think the hard thing if you're a pastor is a lot of people say, I like Jesus, I can believe the gospel. But then people often don't come to church and you realize, okay, I get why the church has said things the way they have to get people to give, to get people to come to church. And so I think of it sometimes like raising your kids and at a certain age, you know, hopefully around 14 or 15, they say, do I have to love you? And I think the answer at some point is no, you don't have to love me because you want to let them go. So they come back in freedom. And I think the church is suffering a hangover right now uh, from filling people with such terror and fear. And and my hope is that through this message, God starts bringing people back to sing songs because they genuinely uh, want to sing songs. And But I was, wrote, here's another one I thought there was, I would think of my friend Nathan. He's helped with a, with a lot of our stuff on the website and things. And the thing he said to me, but no, this was actually a few other people. I think Matt also said this to me. They said, Peter, this is so great because... I used to hate going to parties. Now I love going to parties um, because I can just enjoy everybody around me. And I totally get that because I, you know, I think I used to go and feel like, well, I'm a pastor. My job is to judge everybody and then, you know, give them advice on how to make their life better. And once I, once I realized, oh, God loves all these people. He's working in all these people. Um, and that's what they said. I just, I like people now. I enjoy going to parties. Well, I was thinking about this, and I have seen um, people here, you know, I said I lived in a real conservative part of the world, and there was one um, couple who they they started finding out about this, and once they were listening to me and they started realizing about this, um, this actually brought them, it, it revived the Christian faith. I mean, this one guy said, I never thought I'd be back in church again. And, but, but this, what you're talking about, this is great. This mm-hmm. is wonderful. And so it, so then, uh, there was one guy who was, um, he was, he, he had bottomed out in recovery and he said, I got to the very bottom and I didn't think of myself as a spiritual person. But when I got down there at the very bottom, I realized I was talking to somebody. So then he goes to, um, AA in, in AA, he is um, al- allowed to have a relationship with the God of his understanding, who is this being of love who met him at the very bottom. And he came, he came, we were having a, a, a class at the church that had to do with recovery, just talking about recovery. And he ended up coming to that class and he didn't say anything. At first, when he came, I said, now, here at this church we're talking about recovery, the God of our understanding is going to be the God as we see revealed through Jesus. And and I can't tell you exactly how you're going to see all of this. And at this church, each person is allowed to have their own understanding and view of this. But let me just say that 
the God that I see through Jesus is a God of perfect love who never abandons anybody, who goes to the darkest hell, who never fails and who never loses and who wins with all of his children. And that's all of us. And I said, that's, that's how I see the God. That, that's how I see God through Jesus. Now, you don't have to see it, and everybody doesn't hear to see it that way, but just so you know kind of where you are and the latitude that you have to come to your own best understanding of this. Well, so he, he came to the class for another several months and then didn't say anything, and then finally he started talking. And when he talked, we all, you know, we were, well, he's talking. And what he said was that the that he's, you know, been around, you know, he's heard preachers before. And he said, but you're the first one that ever described to me the God that I met when I was at Ooh. the bottom. Mm. And that was kind of a clue to me that I was on the right track, that that I was describing. I wasn't convincing him of anything. I was just describing to him the very one that he met on the bottom. What he didn't know was that that view of God was allowed in a church. Mm. You, you know, David, I... <laughs> I have a guy uh, that I talk with every now and then. He's in England and he, just brilliant. And I think he's a, a physicist and he has sent me books he's written and uh, they're, they're really good, complicated, hard to to follow in places just because it, he's, I think he's, he's brilliant. It's like reading David Bentley Hart or something. <laughs> but he described his conversion and he had this incredible encounter with Jesus who appeared as a light in his room. And then he said, but then over the years, I began to think, well, that I couldn't trust that because I started hanging out with all these Christians and they, you know, I got into Calvinism and everything. And he was so excited to hear this. And he, and he's, and he has a critical mind, but um, this message for him was exactly the same. It was like, this is that thing that this is the Jesus that showed up in my bedroom when I was a kid. And lo and behold, I've been deceived by the church, which is shocking for people. But I go, well, remember who crucified Jesus? It wasn't the tax collectors and the prostitutes. It was, it was his religious family who, you know, he was a, he was a threat. The grace of God was a threat to their, to their power. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I heard another story uh, that was recounted to me by this, uh, very sincere woman uh, goes to an evangelical Bible school, goes eventually into the goes to, goes on a short term mission, and meets people in another land that have another religion that have grown up and and just becomes distraught that you know she's trying to explain her understanding what she'd been taught about Christianity to them and it just wasn't having much of an effect on them and. She then she comes back. She's trying to sing in a worship band, but she's singing the songs and it just doesn't she doesn't know she believes the words anymore in the songs. And then she finds out about all of this and it just her it it, it allowed her to regain her faith. And and those people that that she met over in the other country who didn't understand Christianity uh, the way at least she was trying to explain it. Well, she had confidence that someday it would all get straightened out, that they would that they would get to hear the right understanding of it and that she could sing the songs and that God really was love. And it's just restored her entire um, her entire spiritual life. And there's another person I know about who grew up 
in the in the Mormon church. And they eventually left the Mormon church, but they were kind of disgruntled about um, any kind of Christianity that that featured a God that that didn't that was ultimately going to give up on somebody. Mm. And she found out about uh, Christian universalism and her comment when she's uh, a lawyer and her comment was, for me, my religion has to make sense. It has to be coherent. And this is the first presentation of the Christian faith that I ever heard that actually makes sense. That's coherent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I hear uh, I hear that quite something like that quite a lot. And I was thinking too, you know, if you're a pastor, you have to deal. <laughs> so funny, pastors say this stuff, and then they do a funeral for a kid that's killed themselves, and all of a sudden they right. switch their theology because they because it's so terrifying. Yeah, right, it doesn't work at the funeral. Does it? Yeah, and I but I find this to be so helpful. So to, to me, and and I think this is helpful to people too because. You, you, the one fear of people is that God won't deal with evil, right? That he's just going to allow all this evil to continue. Mm-hmm. That's one fear. And then the other fear is that he will deal with evil because they realize they got their own evil. And I go, well, the wonderful news is that both are, that, that he, he, he will deal with evil, but you can trust him with the evil. So mm-hmm. what I say to folks about suicide is, well, it doesn't mean that it, the problem with suicide is it doesn't work. You, you can't, we're all we all need to die to ourselves so you can't kill yourself with yourself but the story is not over once a person kills themselves so i don't know if they immediately you know encounter jesus and he does something or whether that they may maybe they have to deal with their decision for a while i don't know but the good thing is that god's going to fix the evil he's going to cleanse them he's going to heal them and he's going to bring them home and I can trust that whatever God does, it will be the absolute best for everyone, including them and and for me. And so I have wonderful news at this funeral, and that is whatever is wrong, whatever was wrong, Jesus is going to fix it. And he doesn't just like gloss over it. So, you know, people are always stress like, are you saying Hitler will be in heaven? And I go, yeah, and you will be in heaven. But the, the <laughs> wonderful thing is God's going to fix the God's going to fix what's wrong. Um and so it takes evil seriously and takes the good more seriously. Yeah, I think also keeping in mind, it's not just a good story. I remember uh, actually at the, the conference that we were at, Peter, in uh, California in 2015, where one of the theologians at the very end said, well, I must say, after having heard uh, people on all three views, endless punishment, um, annihilation, and ultimate uh, restoration, he said, the, the view on ultimate restoration is the best story. It's the only one that has a happy ending, right? Yeah, oh gosh. It's not yeah. just the best story, it's true. Remember, yeah. I think it's in A Group Observed, or no, in um, Surprised by Joy. C.S. Lewis says that he was always enamored with the stories of um, uh, Norse mythology. And he loved it. And when he came to uh, find out the gospel, what he realized was, this is true. This is a great story, but it's also true. And I think to an even greater extent, because he was a little waffling on some of the endless punishment part of that, but it's not just a great story. It's true. Yeah. It really does exist. That God that you were talking about, uh, David, 
who uh, is all-powerful and good and loving and is going to accomplish all of his purposes, that God really does exist. That's what's the exciting part of it. That we've got a great story, but that story is true. And you know, George, that's that's Anselm's ontological argument. Uh, mm. Can back it out, and and basically that is, it's the idea that well, it's so good it has to be true because how on earth would we get to heaven and God mm. reveals all of His glory and us be well like disappointed? You know, well I'm kind of mm. disappointed, God, because we told a better story down on earth and your stories aren't as good. Well, that's just that goes against absolutely everything that Scripture says. That's, well, a and, That's a good point. That's a good point. And human beings are relentlessly narrative creatures. We mm-hmm. we generate all kinds of stories, and so all of us, I think, whether we, um, you know, whether we know it or not, are living in a narrative, whether we're conscious of it or not. And that narrative then determines how we view the world and how we view our lives. Well, if that if the narrative is fundamentally tragic. Hmm. you know, then even if it's a spiritual or religious narrative, if that narrative is fundamentally tragic, then it introduces that tragedy or that hopelessness into your own, into your own life. The reverse, however, is if you live inside of a narrative, which you believe, absolutely believe to be true, which has a happy ending for everyone, well, then you live in the present moment out of the power of that narrative. Boy, that makes people resilient and hopeful and happy and, and and joyful. And when you run into somebody like that, well, they've got something that's just naturally attractive. And it's like, wow, you know, why are you in such a good mood? Well, yeah, and you can, you can, back in the, uh, <laughs> the uh, late 60s, early 70s, there was this thing called the Jesus movement, right? Uh, you guys are a little younger <laughs> than I am. But the Jesus movement was just amazing. I mean, I was on campus at uh, Northwestern and um, had just recently become a Christian or decided to follow God wholeheartedly in 1969. And all these guys that I knew that were radical, anti-war, drug addict uh, type people, all of a sudden their lives changed and they were just amazed and what they talked about was the goodness of who God was. Mm-hmm. And then unfortunately, it got into this whole idea. I think Satan just really attacked viciously at that point. It got into the idea that we got to bring about converts, not just disciples. And it kind of dissipated from that point on. But what the message was, was God is really good and loving and, and beautiful. And, and has uh, a wonderful plan for your life. That's right. Yeah. And it's a wonderful plan, and not just for your life. In fact, just, you know, you mentioned the four spiritual laws earlier, um, uh, Peter. The interest, I, I was on Campus Crusade for Christ staff for four years from 1971 to 1975. We actually had seminars to tell us why it was okay for the four spiritual laws not to have a section on hell. It was amazing. The four spiritual laws started out with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It didn't talk about hell. Whereas the the typical, at the time, the typical evangelical message was you're going to hell. And so therefore you've got to come to God so that you can be saved from hell. That was the basic message. And Bill Bright just turned it on its head by saying God loves you and has a wonderful plan for for your life. You're separated from God. Uh, Christ comes and uh, is able to be that bridge 
and you can uh, accept him into your life. But he didn't talk about hell. And he got a lot of flack for that. And we actually had seminars to tell us that it was okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. But, but it was, so he was, I'd say he was partway there. So it was better than the other option. But, you know, if you think about the name, back to that name, Jesus, God is salvation. That's a plot right there. That's the plot summary of reality. And so you develop your own narrative, which is I am salvation. And at a certain point, you surrender to the plot summary, which is Jesus, God is salvation. And the plot is so powerful that he really rewrites us. We write our own story, but the plot is so powerful, he writes us even back into his own story. So Mm -hmm. even, even sin in the end becomes this place where grace abounds all the more. And... It, it is the, and then there are these texts. This is the thing I realize in scripture. There are certain texts in scripture that are plot summaries. There are other texts that say something that it, it maybe is her- terrifying, horrifying, scary, but the plot summaries all wrap all the way, they get to the end and the end is Jesus. So Jesus is the beginning, he's the end, and he's the way between the beginning and the end. He's the way, he's, he's the plot summary. So the, you know, I, I think probably there's a whole God's God uses everything. So the, the, I don't mean to rip on the four spiritual laws, except that they leave the plot summary up to you. So in other words, you get to the end and whether or not God is salvation depends on your decision rather than announcing simply what God's decision is. Well, I think that we have had a good, we've had a good discussion. We've talked about how this has um, affected our own lives and how this has affected, how we've seen it positively affect the lives of others. And I want to thank you guys for uh, the, the, the positive impact you've had in my life. I can just say that if you get into this journey and you start believing that, I don't know if I believe that God is ultimately going to save all, I might lose some some Christian friends that I have in other groups that don't believe this. Well, I can just say you, but you will be introduced into a very interesting and diverse group of Christians who are recovering an ancient gospel. And you find them in evangelical circles. You find them in Orthodox circles. You find them in Catholic circles. You find them in mainline Protestant circles. You find them in non-denominational circles. And there's just lots of ways to feel connected um, to all of this through conferences and, and online things. And so you, you're, if, if you decide to go this route and this is the way that, that you decide to believe you're going to have friends and you're going to meet some great people along the way. And I can testify to that. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, David. Sure. Appreciate what you're doing. This is great. Yeah. Hey, can I mention one last thing before we go? Uh, sure. One book you didn't uh, mention, I wrote a book called The History of Time and the Genesis of You. And in my mind, that's about the plot summary. And it'd be the first book that I'd want people to read um, that I think th- that's exactly what God's doing. He's just telling the very best story. And the plot summary is Jesus and he's not going to fail. The word's going to accomplish its the word is the plot. The plot's going to happen. Amen. All right. Well, Uh, George Saris and Peter Hyatt, thank you for joining me today on the Grace Saves All podcast and for giving us a testimony to how this has changed your life and how you've seen it change the life of others. God bless you both. And God bless you. Thank you, David.
Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.